Welcome to the Just Joe Podcast, episode 18. Big one eight. We are uh, we can we can vote now. We can vote. We can uh we can drive after nine now as a podcast. This podcast I bring in an old friend, like I always I always say in old friends because this is what my podcast is. I bring in these people in from my my journey in the music industry and also in life. I'm bringing in Jeffrey Pringle. Uh, he was a manager for Brand New Sin, but we talk about his career in the music industry that started at 17 years old, booking bands all the way up to his foray with Lou Pearlman and the Backstreet Boys and everything in there. And then we talk about the future of the music industry and little tidbits here and there. So everybody, welcome to the podcast, Jeff Pringle. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Just Joe Podcast, uh, episode 18. I can't believe I made it this far. They haven't pulled the plug on me yet. People are still listening. I appreciate that. I have an old friend of mine. Uh, he was a former manager of Brand New Sin. Uh, and we're just going to see where this conversation takes us. Everybody, welcome Jeff Pringle. What's up, my friend? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me, Joe. You're welcome, man. I was sitting here trying to tell my producer. I'm like, all right, so... And, you know, I give everybody a little background so he makes these notes. And I'm like, well, I go, from what I remember of Jeff, I go, this is what he's done. And I kind of listed off the things that I kind of remember you doing. Like, you were a booking agent at one time many moons ago. I right? was. And then, yeah, for and, a number of years, 14 years or so. Right. In Nashville, correct? Correct. Started out in, I guess, 1989, working for a guy named Buddy Lee, who was a New Yorker, moved to Nashville. Actually, one of the first pro wrestlers. And uh, really? moved to Nashville after he ended his wrestling career. He was married to a lady named Rita Cortez. It was like I think one of the very first female pro wrestlers. Oh, my producer is going to have to go crazy. He's a huge wrestling fan, so he's gonna, look at this. <laughs> so they moved to uh, Nashville, I guess, sometime in the early, sometime in the sixties, I guess. And uh, Buddy got into uh, the agency game, and uh, I went to work for Buddy when I was seventeen. Wow, so you were you were younger than I thought you were when you got into that game. Yeah, I was. What the uh, fuck? What the fuck know, were you thinking? I was too young to go. I was too dumb to go to school. So I just decided that uh, I was gonna. I couldn't make any money in the music business going to school. So I decided I was gonna go to uh, go to work. And then one summer, buddy offered me a job and making two hundred bucks a week, and that was. <laughs> And the rest was history since then. So, what, what, what was the first like real act that you booked? Do you remember? The first real, the first date I ever booked was on a girl named I think it was on a girl named Robin Lee who had had a cover of Black Velvet that, that the same year Alana Miles and her both put out the song. What same song say? She had a number one hit on country radio, and, I, and uh, I think Alana had you know the top forty hit with right. it. You know, but back in those days, I mean, I was. We were representing Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and um, American Gladiators and Alice Cooper and a lot of a lot of country stuff, but a lot of stuff that you know was also you know popular rock stuff. We had a big fair and festival department, and I, I remember the most, one of the most exciting things that happened to me was we were in an agency meeting and. Tom Wopat wanted to come and sign with us, and nobody wanted to talk to the guy. <laughs> and I was so excited because I was such a fan of the show. I was like, "I'll take to the guy, talk to the guy." Right. And so, yeah, that was uh, that was one of my first acts that I was the responsible that I, that I had signed to the agency back in the day, so yeah, a long time ago. And what was the biggest act that you ended up booking along the way? Garth for 
250 bucks a night, Dixie Chicks, before Natalie was even in the band. Um, the, uh, let's see, a lot, a lot, a lot of big acts back then. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously Garth was just an anomaly. Yeah. It happened so quick. Trisha Yearwood, Martina McBride, Tracy Lawrence, um, Neil McCoy, um, uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of cool stuff too. Like, I don't even know if you would even know who Billy Joe Shaver is. Of course, um, yeah, I got all of, his. I got a bunch Billy of his Joe records. Shaver. Yeah, I'm a huge Billy Joe fan. Yeah. yeah, first first time I ever went to Europe was with Billy Joe. So nice. I went and played some festivals over there. I was like 18 or something. Anyway, yeah. So, so then I moved from there and went over to open the office for CAA in '94 when they opened in Nashville. Me and uh, a couple, three other guys. Yeah, but then, like, you had this foray into, like, the boy band world. Yeah? So I'd been at CAA <laughs> for about three or four years, and um, this is back when when I went to CAA, there was, like, 90 agents and 100 agents in the whole company. Right. There was, like, 15 of us in the music department. There was, like, four or five of us in Nashville, maybe eight or nine in L.A., and there was no New York office or London office or China office. It was a, you know, it was a smaller company then, even though we were doing hundred and some odd million dollars a year out of Nashville alone. Um, and then I ended up getting uh, sucked into Lou Perlman's Vortex. And <laughs> in the very early days before NSYNC was even around, and he'd already started having problems with Backstreet, and he had convinced me to come down and try to run that company. So I left Nashville after about 14 years there and went down to uh, Orlando and uh, and I worked real hard for Lou for a while until I figured out what was going on there and then I made him buy me out of my contract and thank you know that, that was kind of then, well thank God he had the money to buy you out <laughs> well instead of trying to give you a yeah, blimp he didn't, that didn't have much of it he didn't it was a really weird scenario because when I went to work for Lou, I, 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 didn't, I thought the guy was such an, a joke to begin with. I, I, I didn't really want the job, and he kept pursuing me. My, my insurance agent, who's one of the bigger insurance agents in the, in, agents in the music business, you don't think of these kind of positions in the industry, but uh, a guy named Peter Temkins, who's a wonderful guy and really well-respected, uh, I mean, he does everybody's touring insurance, you know, whether it's ACDC or... Tim McGraw, he's the insurance agent, right? right. So he had introduced me to Lou, and Lou kind of like persistently pursued me for a number of months. And finally, I just said, I said, okay, Lou, this is the number. And it was just this absolutely absurd number, <laughs> and I just figured it would make him go away. And he's like, okay. <laughs> You're like, shit, I got to go work for this. So I guy. said, I want a five-year deal. And uh, so it was pretty quick to get the paperwork done, and when I went to work there, they didn't have any office space for me. So I was sharing an office with a guy that was in charge of sending out these statements every quarter to lose investors. And so he had all these three-ring binders all over the office. Meanwhile, I've got 90-some of my people working for me in the music department. I didn't really pay much attention to what Bob was doing. <laughs> right. But, you know, finally, after about 18 months, I figured out that there was a problem. And I um, just basically told Lou one morning, I said, this is the deal, and you're going to buy me out of my contract today, and you're going to write me a check today for the rest of it, and 
if I get a subpoena, then I'll tell the feds what I know, which isn't much. And otherwise, we won't speak again. And that was the last time I spoke to Lou. And, um, you know, he paid me out. And about six years later, I got a call from the U.S. attorney. And I told him the same thing. I said, look, you know. Send me a subpoena. I'll tell you whatever I know. But if you've gotten to me, then you don't need me. Right, like, you don't need you me. Yeah. Know more than I know. I said, I'll, I, uh, you know, I, I obviously know who you're talking to, and they know far more than I know. So I was the music guy, and, um, you know, so he ended up, you know, going to jail without my help, and. Uh, <laughs> Dying well, in there shortly thereafter. So we're that's right. He's dead, right? <laughs> Forgot yeah. that. But I mean, yeah. was it was without like getting into this because I want to get into a bunch of other stuff. But sure. like, was yeah, was I'll, the was the guy like was he that smart or did he was he just good enough to get know, people to believe his bullshit for long enough? You know, I, I guess Lou. I, 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 Lou was the best A and R guy I've ever met in my life. Right. And the reason why I said that is is he would never give up on anything. He would spend countless millions of dollars on acts that were absolutely worthless. And I'm talking about like five million bucks. I mean, I I can tell you names of artists and you you would be like, are you kidding me? Like Phoenix Stone. We probably spent three and a half million bucks on this guy. And like, you're like, what? You're kidding me. Who? Like all kinds of these acts that we just spent tons of money on that had no talent, but Lou believed in them. And regardless of what may or may not have been going on in the non-business, non-music end of that deal, which I certainly can't comment on because I don't know what was happening outside of the office space. um, You know, Lou's a nice guy. And that's what made him so dangerous. He was really a nice guy. And not necessarily a good person. Right. He was just nice, and he was friendly. I should say he was a friendly guy. I guess nice is a definition that has a lot of meanings, but friendly was the, friendly with the smile, and he was a believable salesman. Um, well, obviously, but he was, I but I mean, he, dude, he, cha- he, changed, he changed music. You know, you know he ch- everything that we have now, everything that's kind of done now is all kind of a template or... The people that were writing for N Street, you know, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys are still all the people that are guys. still fucking writing all the yeah, goddamn Max hits Martin. to this day. I mean, Max Martin, Max Martin, and Christian Lundgren, and those guys out of Sweden. Yeah, they made their careers off of our acts. Yeah. I mean, they were talented guys. They were great writers at the time. They were in the scene, but it was the it was NSYNC and Backstreet and O-Town, and you know, I don't know how much Christian and, and, and Max wrote on the early Britney stuff, but those were where they got paid, and that's where they, 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 they really, you know... Yeah, and, now, and now, look at, now look at those guys. I mean, dude, one out of every three hits is written by one of those dudes, or one of their sure. protégés, or somebody to come out of that sure. freaking house, yeah. or that realm. Yeah, it's uh, like, it's out, crazy. Out of that, out of that um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of their entity yeah. real quick. There, but, there was uh, a, of a collective second. of it, because I read a book not too long ago right. about writing the perfect song or something like that, and it really it, it documents Max Martin and the guy that was before him that ended up passing away, Max's predecessor. 
the guy that wrote the the songs for Ace of Base, the sign and stuff like that. He was the guy that Max was a little bit for Max, but uh, and and it just follows the lineage of those dudes and all the way up to you know what we have now. And it's like wow, these are yeah who these dudes are. And, and like Loop, yeah. if it wasn't Maritone. for Tone, I think the company called the company's called Maritone. It was, it was Max. That's exactly Maritone. And, and so you know. You think about as crazy as fucking Lou Pearlman was and what he pulled off and the the downfall of it all. Let's look at what actually did happen to the music industry because of it. I don't think he was he's definitely not crazy, and I don't think he started out. He's not a criminally minded guy. Like this is a guy that really, I think, was at the core probably a pretty decent human being in right. a weird sense of the way I think it just got away from him. Yeah. Like it got to be at a point where he was an expert at borrowing money. And that's really where his true skill was. And he could get people to loan him money through some sort of investment vehicle or bank loan like nobody else I'd ever been around. And you know, I don't really know how he did it because I wasn't involved in those deals. But he, once he had this machine going, he would parade these guys through the recording studios, the shows or whatnot. And it's kind of a very similar beast in a way to what Live Nation has become. And uh, on a uh, Live Nation on a much bigger scale. But right. these financiers and, uh, and and people that run money for a living would come into the environment and they get rude by the stardom and the energy of the show and the studio and the people they were around. And they forgot that, you know what, the underlying still has to present a, 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 a black line or a black number at the end of the year in order to justify the loan. And people just looked the other way. I think they just wanted to be in the middle. You know, they didn't, I think, it was just, and so Lou ended up getting himself in this situation where he just couldn't make. I mean, obviously, they'd all crumble because he couldn't make the, he didn't have the money to pay back the loans when people were calling him in, you know? Right. It's crazy, but I mean, so he, so you think he, he not only had an influence, obviously, on, you know, making the boy band the thing it is now or that thing, but do you sure. think that that transferred over into like what? the rest of the world knows about it, but we're still not really privy to it, but like K-pop. You, think- you know, I'm not I'm not smart enough to know or, uh, the history of where K-pop came from and how long it's been around for, but it's certainly been a massive thing in, in, in the world for a number of years, and it's finally just coming to America like it should, and I think it's coming to America like it should just because there's a void here. Yeah. Like, we've gone multiple, you know, there's been times throughout our lives where we've gone six, eight, ten years without a boy band, you know, and right now, there is no One Direction, and, uh, you know, so there's a, there's a void. And, you know, when Lou came in with Backstreet, you know, it was a time between new kids on, it was, you know, what about? About eight years, ten years, about ten years after one new new one. I mean, uh, new kids were new gone. Kids, yeah. They came around about ten years after Menudo was gone, right? Right. Or eight years. I don't know the exact calendar, but there's a cycle, right? And what it shows you is is that young women throughout the world drive the global music business, and that you can't have a career in any any place in the world of any substantiality without being able to energize you know 12 to 18 year old women <laughs> well that's one thing there was a lot of things 
you got us to be Sorry, able to work. Joe, you no. know, those 13 year old girls no. were not in the brand new store. Right. Well, but that's that, that what I was going to say. They just didn't want to take the pants off. <laughs> but we had, we had a conversation. Uh, near the end of what Brand New Sin was, we worked with a we worked. You got us hooked up with a guy named Tony Battaglia. Now, Tony, for any one of my oh, listeners, I forgot about Tony. Uh, and Tony uh, played guitar uh, for a number of years for a dumb bunch of you know, like as a studio guy. But as anyone in my realm would know, Tony is like co-writing some of all of Shinedown's early hits. You know, forty five yes. and and all I those. Mean, he wrote. He wrote. Uh, he and uh, a guy named Sean wrote um, the, the the very first hit. Mandy Moore had. Yep. Mandy Moore was Tony Battaglia's act. Yeah, I mean there would be no Mandy Moore without Tony Battaglia. There would be no Shine Down without Tony. No, Battaglia. there would be. So there, there wouldn't be. We were the we entire worked. first record. Well, I would say Bob Marlette had a lot to do with that. Yeah, as Bob well, did but. too. But but Tony did too. But like we worked with we worked with Tony. We did some demos with Tony out in El Paso, which I still to this day want to go record again there. But I remember Tony at one point we're having a conversation, and Tony was talking to the guys in the band and talking to myself. And everybody, and we were at a very weird point of that band. I th- really think it was like, okay, we're either going to change something or it's just going to fall apart. Right? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. But Tony said, and it really took it away from, it's like, listen, women shop, men steal. True. And, and that's where he says, he goes, you become a big act because women get into your act somehow. Teen, yeah. Teenage girls, older women, whatever like that. He goes, that's where it is. He goes, women shop, men steal. I remember him saying that in the middle of some conversation. I'm like, what? And it really, you just kind of like back that up. I mean, obviously, teenage girls weren't going to get into brand new sim, but I mean, it is kind of a global thing. Once you get, If you get that market, then you're good. You know? Yeah. It's an, it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic of the whole, you know, Although then you listen, you have bands like Tool that you know uh, never had any women that were fans no. for the most part. Or Slayer, you know, so you can have a career. But I'm you just can speaking in general, general generalities, right? Right, generalities. But it's 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 a real interesting thing, and like you know, that gets us like, and then that after you leave that, you kind of get into the music business. You're not in the music business anymore, are you at all? At all? I've kind of extracted myself in that. I promoted, co-promoted. Uh, most of the Godsmack Bowl beat dates in Canada last year with my, my guy I promote shows with Mike Massioli, which kept me from coming to your brand new Sin Reunion show because the only way I was going to get there was going to charter a jet because I couldn't get from Edmonton to there. <laughs> um, I, I tried diligently. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, it uh, the, the business is, it, you know, I'll answer that question by telling you where I transitioned. I mean, yeah. One day I was sitting at home and uh, I got a call from an attorney and who had represented one of my clients, my country music clients. He says, hey, Jeff, you got a place down in Orlando, right? I said, yeah. He says, you know anybody who wants to buy some car washes? <laughs> well, so I ended up buying five car washers from Shaquille O'Neal, <laughs> who was his client. And... Um, <laughs> What I realized after I got into this business was that if you give the customer a good product, they give you their money. <laughs> and I'd never experienced that type of interaction with a customer in the music business. No. You know, you work so hard, you put on a great show, nobody cares. You make a great record, nobody cares. And the people that, a lot of people that were successful financially were successful financially and had bad products. Right. And 
it really, really made me like change my emotional interaction with the customer and what I wanted to invest my time in. And I, I had felt like no matter whether I was 18 years old or whether I was, you know, out of the agency game and out of the record label game, and out of the management game, it was always a fight. Yeah. You were always trying to fight for something and whether it was more money for your artist, a, a record deal, a tour, uh, it was like a scrapping match all day long. And unless you are, even if you have superstar acts, it still becomes a fight on the other side, meaning you're fighting for better deals all the time. You're fighting for better positioning on the shelf or better advertising positioning, or you're fighting for better ticket master deals. And I just got burnt out on people who are like, oh, well, that's just business negotiation. And <laughs> yes, except it's every day and it's, becomes a brutal experience. Uh, I mean, um, you feel, anyone, like, you feel I, like a litigate. You feel I might as well just been practicing law and right. a litigator. If anyone really wants to like see what you're talking about, there's there's a great documentary that came out probably like six or seven years ago called Artifact, which documents the whole mm-hmm. lawsuit between Thirty Seconds to Mars and EMI. And, Interesting. Okay, and and it's fascinating because it's he you know Jared Leto wants to make this record. And he gets sued by EMI, and they conversely sue EMI. <clears throat> but you're looking at one of the most successful pop rock acts in the world, a very widely known person in in entertainment with Jared Leto, mm-hmm. and they have the greatest manager of all fucking sure. time, Irving Azoff, and yet they're still fighting for it. You know, like even to this day, you're 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 arguably one of the biggest acts. You had the biggest. You're on the biggest record label in the world. And you have this manager, yet it's a dogfight for two and a half hours in this thing because of $30 million, you know? Yeah. So that and just so shows you, no like, even at that like level, that, you're so. just fight. You're just fucking fighting. There's no other business like that. And no. everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, but the majority of the people in that industry are the mindset. And it's like this in the movie business and the TV business as well. I, I was recently at a friend of mine's house in Beverly Hills, who's a very big manager, uh, who transitioned from, he worked with me at CAA as an agent and then he left and he has, you know, uh, probably his, his movie clients are making $250 million a year. He's a big manager. You know, and I'm just looking at him. I'm going like, Man, you're five years younger than I am. You look like shit. Like, <laughs> what are you doing, man? Like, I think like you look. Young, I think you look younger day. now than you did when you were working in the music business. You look uh, healthier. You look healthier. You look happier. I feel better. Right? I feel better. I don't work as hard. I don't right. work as hard. It's not a fight. Right. And you know that the business is. It's not as much of a. It's not really a, the music business. Isn't really a business. It's like a. It's like a. It's a. Bad, like a bad chess game. Yeah. Um, and today it's even it, today it's better, I think, because 
the playing field is much more level. So yes. you, 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 the opportunity to get signed doesn't exist. The opportunity to have outside investment doesn't really exist. So you just go do what you do every day and play music. And if people get excited, then they get excited. If they don't, they don't. But I know. I had, I had like this, I had this conversation. To invest in you, which makes it kind of a little bit more fun. Yeah. I mean, I was having this conversation this morning. I was going to have this conversation off off the microphone, but I'm, I'm going to bring it up because we just put out the brand new send live CD and DVD and we put it out and I'm having conversation with the guys so like, Oh, how, how do we promote this? How do we get this out to the people that are beyond our core fans? How do we let people know that we're a band again? How do we make this relevant? How do we, you know, get traction under this? And I won't say who, but you know, one, one of the guys in our band is in talks with a, a guy that worked with Brandison near the end of Brandison mm-hmm. before after I was out and talking about Spotify playlist and how to get placed in some Spotify playlist because that's a, that's a huge thing you get put in a, a decent playlist you're gonna get some plays you're gonna get notoriety or a little bit like that and basically sure. he gave us a, a pricing chart and I'm like okay well, I like that okay so he gave us a pricing how much does it cost me. At least I know. Right. I go, Let how much? Pay. Basically, it's a payola thing. I'm going to pull this thing off. Uh, I like that. I like to know, like, I'm just buying myself a place. I'm buying myself advertising. Right. I play my record. I, 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 I like that. So it comes down to I mean, this, and this is, how, this is how much it was. And I was like, whoa. I'm like, okay. So basically, um, if you get 100,000 plays that are guaranteed real, supposedly not by a bot, it's thirty seven hundred and fifty dollars. Sounds a little expensive to me. <laughs> and then seventy five thousand plays is twenty five hundred, and then you work that down as low as to ten thousand plays, and I don't know what the tag is on that. Uh, but he said that a hundred thousand plays is guaranteed seven hundred dollars. Like we'll get seven, we'll definitely get seven hundred dollars back. I'm like, so let well, me. You know get what's this. interesting? Can you tie that? Can you say, okay, listen, I'll pay you the 3700 but I only want to be played right after this song. Yay. Do we have that can ability? you pick this song? I don't know, but <laughs> we think if they can control it, they know how many times they're going to play. You figure out what song that you think that all the people that are listening to that playlist will continue to listen to right. through the end of the song. So at least you think they're going to catch the first 15 seconds of your song and say, okay, I'll do this, but it has to be tagged exactly on the back end of this song. Right. And I don't know if that's it, but I'm like, I'm like man, well, we're guaranteed at least that out of the 3,700, we'll probably get, we'll, we're only going to really spend three grand. And I'm just like, oh man, I go, this hurts my head. I go, dude, it, I go, I don't think this is a wise investment, you know, you know, but this is but without getting into what that really is, because I've already made up my mind what I want to do with that. But this is what the music industry has become. And that's okay. There's a little more transparency with it. But at the same time, there's numbers involved, and that's this is, and that doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean that we're getting anything out of it, other than maybe seven hundred bucks. Well, if you figure three percent of the people to hear that song are going to figure out who the band is, then you're really your conversion. That would be your hopeful conversion rate. And let's right. say your real conversion rate is only one percent, which is probably somewhere in reality land. You're hoping to build a thousand fans out of that thirty some hundred dollar investment, and I think that's the way that you have to look at that. Right. And then, and then it's like, wow, man! It's like I don't know if that's a terrible number either. No, it's not a terrible number, but I mean, for a band that's completely funding it themselves, 
I can see where a record. Well, that's a whole different conversation. Right. It's, like, it's, it's a, whole, a whole different it's conversation. It's like, man. The metric, the conversion metric, like if I'm selling a product in one of my other businesses that I'm in, and I know I'm going to spend $3,750, I'm going to have a thousand unit conversion rate. I think it's an excellent conversion rate. The problem is, is you're not selling a product for 30 or 40 or $50 to them. Right. Right. Maybe they'll just stream it again. And I'm just like, oh my God. But I mean, this is like kind of where I wanted to go. And I'm like, I kind of know what I, I, I my opinion is what I want to do with Brandon Sanders. It's the very same thing that I wanted, that I've done with Just Show. It's like, listen, I'm done trying to conquer the world. You know, like, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't have, I, listen, I'm creeping in. I'm 50 years old. I have a daughter that I really fucking love and want, love watching grow up and being around her. I just kind of like living in my own little world and doing what I do. And it's built up pretty good you have a business yeah you have a I'm, business. A, I'm a you have business a career yeah and 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 it's good and brand new sins a part of it and i would like for it to grow again but i'm like why don't we just you know do things you know a certain way and just let I, my basic my biggest successes that have been on my personal side is something that's completely grown organically and it might take 10 years or five years or six years or three years but when it does happen it's there you know, yeah, and it's real and has substance, and you know, I think that's the way most most band, most successful bands have careers, right? That you know, it grows organically, well, even though they might get a little jump start. But the ones that have fire out of the box usually go away quickly. Right. Well, I, I heard Ice T speaking on a, a podcast not too long ago, and I was fascinated by it because he's like, "I don't care about a million fans. I don't want a million fans." And he goes, "I don't even want a half a million fans." He goes, "I don't even want a thousand. He goes, "I don't even want a hundred thousand fans." He goes, "You know what I want?" He goes, "I want a thousand fans," and he goes, "I want those thousand fans to buy everything that I do. Fifteen dollar T shirt, boom, fifteen thousand yeah, dollars." He goes, $20 CD, $20,000. Tickets, you know, $30. Concert tickets, $30,000. He goes, you start adding that up. He goes, all of a sudden you made six figures off of three transactions with your thousand fans. He goes, that's all you need. <laughs> I think he's very right. And I'm like, wow, that's a brilliant way to put it. He's like, I just want thousand people that'll just do anything I do. And he goes, other than that, I don't care about the other. He goes, I do care. But he goes, that's all you need. Yeah, he, true. It's true, but I mean, true. the music, it's such, I mean, do you see the music industry now as like, now that you're away from it, and now that streaming is definitely like, this is where, this is the delivery method, and it'll always be the delivery method. Um, do you see that, like, do you see us going into another golden age of music? Do you see us having another a resurgence of record labels or like, I mean, things got better, yeah, than they were 10 or 15 years ago. No, I think it's there, there's a massive division now, and there's a big washout happening in the industry as a whole. The washout really has to do with the, the baby boomer era, both as a consumer and as an artist and as a music industry employee. Mm -hmm. So most of the baby boomers, they're either retired or they've been fired from their jobs. And people my age, or say even a little older than I am, 50 to 60, they've either they're left the music industry or they've been fired, or they're, 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 they're 
very small percentage of them have a career in the business still, just because, you know, maybe if they're a lawyer or an accountant, they still have some 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 business, maybe if they were a promoter. Right. But then on the the, the 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 touring side and the artist side, I mean, they're just dying. I mean, there isn't going to be that many. Who knows when, you know, there may not be another Aerosmith show tomorrow. You know, somebody's going to die. Look at the well, arrows. I, I look at the Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Poison Tour. I'm like, who's going to have to die on that tour for that thing to get canceled? Right. Like, like, you know, and these are real, like, there is no more Neil Diamond. How long before no more Jimmy Buffett? And, you yeah, know, I mean, in, how, t- in 10 years, know, in 10 years, there'll be a lot of gone. dead. They're all gonna, the touring industry is booming it's right gone. now. But like in 10 years, like. Well, it it's not. It's if you look at the, the, the there are. If you if you 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 tell me give me five acts who've had a debut record in the last five years that can sell five thousand tickets on any night of the week in any English speaking country in the world, <laughs> and you're, you're right. going to be like, okay, Billy Eilish, and now okay, I'm thinking. Yeah, right? but some some of those acts don't even tour. Some of those big right? large acts like Adele, she doesn't do world tours. She doesn't. She plays a handful well, of shows. Yeah, that's and that career is kind of like could be over already right like so you look at now we're talking about stuff that's becoming popular today that i see 13 and 14 year old kids listening to and it's either stuff that your parents raised you on the who and zeppelin and you know the beatles or it's stuff that doesn't tour at all it's really bad rap stuff. Right. I mean, to the extent where these kids don't even know who NWA was. And, like, they're, you know, they're listening to stuff that's just, it's, it's, it's like video game music, as Tony Battaglia would say. It's bad pop, Kim Kardashian kind of just terribly written it, it's embarrassing. And those acts can't sustain careers because that kind of music that there's been foo-foo stuff, you know, whether it was the Debbie Gibson or the Tiffany's or the Mandy Moore's of the world or whoever we would deem that had that kind of stuff, or even the Vanilla Ices of the world, they they just, they just vanish, right? There's never a longevity there. So, and there's nobody investing in new talent, right? It's something that comes out of somebody's bedroom by accident or gets spun off out of some other TV show or friend of somebody, but there's not enough of that coming out or being injected into the marketplace on a global level to be able to justify promoters to promote and record labels to make records or radio. I mean, forget radio. I mean, there are no, as I understand it, iHeart's fired all their programmers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, the, the, the industry is completely splintered, and I think that music plays less of an importance in your daughter's life than it did in your life or my life at her age. I think. Agree. No, I'm I wrong. agree. I totally agree. I mean, there, she's more into like playing Minecraft and like, you know, she likes music because obviously she's bombarded with it being around me. So I think she has a different. Um, perspective than other six-year-olds that she has but when i was six years old i was just spinning records all the time and playing my piano and she's like kind of wants to watch something on disney and play minecraft 
Well, we had like, what, three channels or four channels or five channels on the TV and an Atari. And yeah. That was about it. We That's didn't it. have, you know, oh, we were listening to music and outside playing and doing, you know, things that kids don't do today. So um, I think that the business of music will continue to dissipate. Right. So and does, does it come down to just being like a completely artist controlled? For the most part, I mean, obviously, there's going to be large labels or something. I think it be- is because there's. Not, I think it is because the labels are just not. They become catalog management facilities. They're not interested in anything else. Right. And the monetization of music becomes irrelevant. It's just devalued to the point where there's just no. The the value becomes less and less because the hit factor becomes non-existent. Right. But if a, a band, right. I tell people like they're always well, Spotify doesn't pay shit. You know, someone so got a million dollar or million million plays on on Spotify, and they got like a check for like two dollars. I'm like, well, they got a horrible deal because I guarantee if I got a million plays on Spotify of my solo song that I own 100 percent of everything on, I guarantee it's going to be a lot more than two dollars. You know? Yeah, but like. So what if it does? Even if it's $15,000, even if it's $100,000, there's not enough money in that to be able to make, to run a business. No. That becomes what we're talking about. Like, if there's got to be, there's got to be enough ability to generate revenue from music as a whole in order to have an industry that... You know, presents itself. I mean, look, look, the business has gone into a very similar place that the travel agency business has gone, right? Mm-hmm. It's there, but it's changed. Mm-hmm. It hasn't gone the way of the payphone business, and I don't think it ever will, but the value of the travel agent becomes less and less and less every day. Yeah. And it becomes more specialized every day. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. I mean, I mean you know I, anybody I, that's going to go open a travel agency? No. No. <laughs> Why no. would you? You go to Expedia and Travelocity and do all that stuff yourself. You might say if you were an expert at one place in the world and or you were just going to do travel for a corporation or something, you could maybe figure out a way to make a living. But it wouldn't be on your list of, I'm going to go create an industry out of this, or there's mm-hmm. an industry to support me. I've got to... So, I, I don't know. Look, I'm wrong more than I'm right, so... <laughs> No, I, I'm, I'm a constant trying to figure it out. And my thing is, like, I've stayed in my world, and I've had this conversation a couple of weeks ago on my podcast with a local musician around here. And we said there's a, a, a huge gap because it's like, before we could always see where, like, the, I mean, cover bands are the biggest thing in this town. That's the what draws the most. Sure. Obviously, I'm making a pretty good living playing covers on the piano and stuff like that. So it's like, but there's all of a sudden, there's all of us that are in our you know late 30s to, to early 50s, that let's say 35 to 50-year-old age group that really is playing all the music in this town. But we're looking, we're like, where's the next Just Joe? Where's the next this cover band or that cover? I'm like, where is it? Because these kids nowadays, th- there is none. And then all of a sudden, there's going to be this huge gap where the restaurants and, and venues and events and stuff like that are going to have a hard time finding acts because these younger kids just don't seem to be wanting to do what we do. You know, I think you can answer that question by looking at football as a sport. I think football is thinking in the same ways that you and I are thinking about music. Uh, You know, it's weird for me to say that football is a dying sport, but I think it it actually really is. I think 20 years from now, it's not going to be what it is now. That's for sure. And NASCAR, NASCAR as well. 
like kids are just not engaged in these kind of activities. And, mm-hmm. you know, where you, you see these big, huge shifts in, um, I don't, I, I mean, uh, big, huge shifts in the economics of the machine. And um, you know, music obviously will still be important in many people's lives around the world, but it won't be important in a way that generates money for them. It'll right. be because they just want to go play music. Right. I, 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 and I think that's good in a lot of cases. Um, maybe music will get better. Let's hope, we can only hope. I mean, to this point, I'm just like, I don't want to get signed. I don't want to try to get a record deal. I don't care because there's nothing there for me to do. You know, I'm... Sure. It's past that, but you know, I still get people ask me all the time. Well, well what do I do? What's what's the future? I'm like, I don't, I don't really know. I go, all I know is that if you can learn, the more you can learn how to do on your own, the better. It's always been that route, whether you were, you know, whether it was the 1960s or whether it was the, the you know, yesterday. If you, the more you, the more you can do, the more opportunities that you have. I mean, it's. You know, it's kind of like the Mike Bloomberg scenario. The more money you've got, the more fans you can buy. And it's kind of that, uh, it sometimes works. I mean, I've tried it with acts where we spent millions and millions and millions of dollars. and The consumer just doesn't engage. I've seen that on more than 10 occasions. And uh, so ultimately, you just got to go like, okay, it's not working. It doesn't matter. If you you think you've got something, you can't. You can only push it so far. Ultimately, there's got to be a pull from the customer. Right. Um, but uh, and then sometimes you know there's just a pull from the customer, and you know it drives the whole ship. So, well, so let me so let me ask you this. You know, as we're nearing the end of this, like, what do you miss about the music industry? I know that you're tired of all the fight, but what do you you got to miss something about? What do you miss? I miss really good catering. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fucking great answer. <laughs> From a touring standpoint, <laughs> um, yeah. what I miss the most is something I never respected when I was in the business, and that was, for the most part, I was surrounded with a lot of people that had similar goals that mm-hmm. I had and similar visions but I never really, I think, embraced that the way that I, I could have. And I'm, I don't have that in my other businesses right now where I have employees, but they're employees. Right. And they don't have similar dreams or visions or goals that I have. They right. just, they just, you know, it's a different animal. Um, whereas most of the time when you're, around a band, people that are playing in that band, even if they're hired musicians, they're still kind of in the same business for the same energy, for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I, that, 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 that's a nice thing about the music business. It really kind of only exists in that industry, um, maybe somewhat in the sports business. And I think the other thing that I... I miss a lot is just, I kind of like the consistent travel. I'm kind of a nomadic person in general. And I, 
I, I'm, I enjoy being in different hotels all the time. It sounds really strange, but you know, I've been to, I think there's only like maybe 30 countries in the world I've never been to. And so, you know, I, I miss that constant traveling and different type of cultures and uh, integration with different type of people. Yeah. You know, that's the one great thing about that industry that, you know, is nice. Well, I mean, I, so. I think the best thing I tell people is like, I'm still in it, but I'm not really in it. I play music, but I'm more in like, I'm either helping a bar sell food and beverage. That's my job. The more food and beverage I can help a bar or a, a, a place sell, then sure. the more employable the more than I am. you have. Right. Or, or I'm helping provide a memory by, you know, making memories for someone in an event, whether it be a wedding or a party yeah. or stuff like that, or a night at the casino. I'm just a part of that atmosphere, and I'm cool with that. Can you go in your business into a bar and say, listen, I'll just play for free. I want 5%. I want you know a percentage of what the what, what the revenue is for the night. There, Does that it, exist in that your doesn't, business? It did at one point. There was a time up here in Syracuse, and I don't know if it existed everywhere else. But I know some friends that were agents in this town that booked. You know, when we had a legit agency that was booking forty or fifty acts around New York State on a nightly basis, six nights a week, seven nights a week, mm-hmm. there was the deals that you could get. You'd be like, all right, the guarantee is um, five hundred versus the door and ten percent of the bar sales. That Sounds used, like a pretty good deal to me. It was a great deal. And when I first started doing a weekly thing, and when I first started doing this thing, even this was way back and even in the brand new sin days, it was like 2003, I had to deal with a bar. And my base salary was like, it was 75 bucks, uh, food and drink. And then it was a sliding scale of the bar as the night went on. So like, you know, hey, if we hit a thousand bucks, that's another hundred bucks for you. If we hit two thousand dollars, there's another twenty five bucks all the way up to the point where I could max out. If I mean, they could only make so much in a night. If they hit like a five thousand dollar on the bar. I walked with like five hundred. So that deal did okay. exist. And like when I was okay. first doing it, it was a great deal. But I don't think that that was, you know, that's 18 years ago. 17 years no, ago. I don't even know if that would there. exist anymore, but it, I mean, it'd be it'd be interesting to see if anybody would be like, listen, why don't, I'll play for free, but why don't we just see what happens? You interesting. Know? Yeah, I know, you know, I, I guess it depends on the dynamics of the marketplace right. and, you know, you as a artist and what following you bring into their establishment. Right. And, 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 and I tell the younger bands that really want to try to make it as original artists and stuff like that, and this is something I took away from not only... It was reinforced by that thing I heard with Ice T, but it was something I heard from Steve Joe. Remember Steve, who was our A and R guy uh, at Central Media. How is Steve? He's great. He's working at Prosthetic Records. He's got his own little vinyl thing on the side. He's still in the industry. Good for him, he's a decent person. Yeah, I he like is, Steve. and he's still doing. But he, him, and I had a conversation. I'm like, well, shit, you know, like when we realized we weren't going to re-sign with Century Media, and God knows what was going to happen. I go, dude, what do we do? What happens? He's like. He goes, it's going to become a niche world, man. He goes, music is going to become niche. He goes, I watched it happen in anime because he was a huge anime fan. And he's like, I could tell you a bunch of stuff that happens in anime and doesn't mean anything to you. But he goes, in this world, if you were in the anime world, you got some feverish people that love this certain mm-hmm. kind of anime. Mm-hmm. He goes, that's what music's going to be. He goes, music's going to become very... like the horror, the horror business. Yeah. I mean, there, we, have a, yeah, I agree. we have a small theater here in Syracuse, an old movie theater that got gutted out. And this time of year, there's four or five acts coming through on a nightly basis, which is huge for this town. And people are like, nothing's it's happening great. in this town. I go, yeah, but I go, some of these acts are coming through or selling this fucking venue out, six, seven hundred people on a Tuesday, and you've never heard of them. And they're doing this 
every night. They're doing 200 nights a year. And I go, there's genres and people you've never heard of, and they're flourishing, and they're making bank because they're doing it all on they're their making own. making a living. I go, that, I go, that's, that's where the music, I go, that's what you need to concentrate on. Stop trying to be freaking all this other stuff. About. I go, that's what it's about. That's I go, that's what you aspire to. So I wanted to have at least that conversation with you. I got to go get my daughter. You got to you. You go get some, uh, probably fill up a quarter machine at the car wash. What Baby, some, it's dollars now. Oh, it's dollars now. Yeah, you need the dollars. But, man, what a, what an interesting thing, man. Always love talking to you. We'll catch up Miss soon you, on Joe. the side of Sue, man. Thank you. Love you, brother. Absolutely. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. My album pick of the week is an artist I wish we talked about on this podcast. Uh, Jeff managed for many, many years and was very close friends with her. And that's how we kind of met was a band. Not a band. I should say an artist. Her name is Lennon. Uh, Lennon Murphy uh, is her full name. She put out some great music uh, with Arista Records. And the album pick of the week is 5.30 Saturday morning. And the opening track is called Property of Goatfucker. Check it out. Lennon, 5.30 Saturday morning.